thanks, Cam, for putting that together. And thank you, God, for this beautiful place that we get to live. And I know, uh, yeah, Ron's going to have his feet in the sand soon, but you're going to trade that in, man, for Swampland, Florida? I don't know. All right. Um, Allow me to pray as we come to the message this morning. God, uh, thank you for reminding us of your beauty and the beauty of your creation and the gift that that is to us. Speak to us, we pray. Amen. Uh, Today we're going to continue our sermon series that we've been working through over the last, I don't know, month and a half or so called I Have a Question. And uh, Pastor Scott, he said this each week, and I want to remind us uh, as we tackle this series that this, this series is very much for those of us in the room or online who who haven't said yes to Jesus yet, who might have some hang-ups or questions or even objections to uh, Christianity and to Jesus. And our hope is that through this series, we can just have some conversation and come and encounter some of these, these questions in, a, you know, in an honest and very real way. And, uh, and also for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, just to help define some of these things for us and hopefully better, uh, better understand our own relationship with him and who he is. So uh, we're continuing that series today. I have a question. And this morning, we're going to start in the Bible. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just, we're going to boom, boom, boom through seven verses. Old Testament, New Testament. We're going to rock through a few verses here. And all these verses and many others that I'm not going to read all make a similar point, the same point. And as I read, I, I hope you're able to pick up on the point. Otherwise, this is not a great exercise. But we'll, uh, we'll run through these, these seven verses, just one right after the other, and see if you can pick up on the point as we read. So we're just going to go for it. Here we go. Leviticus chapter 18. Verses 3 and 4 say this. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 4.35 says, You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him there is no other. Isaiah 43 verses 11 and 12 says, I, I am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. John fourteen six. these are the words of Jesus. He answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 17, 3, Jesus again says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Bless you. 1 Timothy 2, 5, last one I'm going to read. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Hope you picked up on that point. These verses that we just read all claim exclusivity, that there is one God, and there is one way to know God, and that's through Jesus. The Bible claims this, and Christians, we live under this conviction that there is one God and one way to know God through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus exclusive. 
Uh, I'm, I'm blessed to have stayed very close with uh, the group of guys that I grew up with. Most of us have moved away from uh, where we grew up in southern Connecticut. We have a couple friends there, but we're in Vermont and Providence and Colorado and Los Angeles. And uh, this group of guys, we still manage to see each other pretty frequently, once or twice a year. At least a portion of us will, will be together, at least in non-COVID times anyway. Uh, last weekend, in fact, we were all together for a wedding. One of our group, one of our friends got married, and I, I was both the best man and the officiant of the ceremony, so figure that one out, and uh, uh, it was a lot of fun. I got to talk a lot and really put a good roast on my friend Mike, which was a lot of fun, because that's the point, right? When you're the best man, you just go up there and, and you roast him. Uh, but it was great to be together, to celebrate, to have fun and catch up. Uh, this group of friends I have... We, uh, we all grew up going to church and youth group in middle school and high school together. And then since that time, uh, I'm the only one who has maintained my faith. All the rest walked away and, and did so a long time ago. And in the early years of some of my friends leaving the faith, a couple of them were, were just apathetic and didn't really care that much. A couple of them became hostile and angry towards God, and there was a lot of years of some hard conversations and, quite frankly, some tension between us because of it. Um, I think it was in 2012, back in the fall of 2012, so nine years ago, that uh, this group of friends, we all said, hey, we're going to get together, we're going to go to New York City. One of the bands we listened to growing up was coming through on a tour, and, and we said, hey, let's get together and, and go see this band play, and, and we'll, spend a, we'll spend some time together. So I was living in Massachusetts at the time, and I drove down to Connecticut to meet up with one of my friends who was living there, and then we were going to drive together into, into the city meet everyone, have dinner, and go see this band play. So um, I was excited to get some car time with this one friend because, uh, you know, I just love him and I was looking forward to, to spending time with him, but also saw the opportunity there in a one-on-one -on -one setting just to ask some questions and kind of get a read on where he's at and have some conversations about faith and, and, and all this stuff. So while we were while we were driving into the city, we had a, a little over an hour of time in the car together, just the two of us, and we were talking, and I forget exactly how we got to it, but we started to talk about his objections to Christianity and religion in general as uh, we were driving, and, and he said something like this. Now, this isn't an exact quote, right? It's nine years ago. My memory's not that good, but this is the best, uh, as I recall our conversation, this is what, you know, kind of pieced together from what I remember from what he said. He said something to the effect of, I don't think it's all bad, but for any one religion to claim to be totally right is arrogant. I think all religions see a different side of things, or at least a different piece of the puzzle. No one's totally right, and no one's really totally wrong. He said something to that effect. Western culture is a pluralistic culture, and the rest of the world is not far behind. There are so many religious systems and philosophies and lifestyles and subcultures and how can any one thing claim exclusive access to the truth or at least exclusive access to God? And Christianity's claim and conviction of exclusivity, that there is one God and one way to know God through Jesus, is an offense in a pluralistic culture. Exclusivity delegitimizes other religions and cultures and philosophies and is therefore seen as intolerant in a pluralistic culture. And to our modern ears, for many of us, and I'm sure even some Christians, the idea that one religion would claim to be the truth is outrageous. Because, you know, most religious beliefs can't be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, at least not till we die or the world ends, right? 
can't be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, so how can we be so sure? And it's one thing to say, well, I believe this, or it's true for me, but it's another to subscribe to a totally exclusive claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. That seems offensive in a world with so many competing claims. We live in a pluralistic culture. Maybe you've heard this story illustration before. Um, It's a parable that originated in India and has often been cited in Buddhist and Hindu contexts, and it's it's called the parable of the elephant and the blind men. Maybe you've heard this before. Excuse me. Maybe you've heard this before. Um, There are many versions of this story, but this short story, this parable really tells this story of a group of six blind men who are invited to come over to the prince's house. And as they come to the prince's house, these blind men encounter an elephant. And they begin to describe the elephant, the blind men. So they reach out and touch it. And the first blind man reaches out and touches the elephant's trunk. Big, long, thick, sturdy trunk. And he says, oh, how round. An elephant is like a snake. And the second blind man comes up to the elephant and touches his side. And it's big, smooth, and wide. And he says, oh, how smooth. An elephant is like a wall. Third blind man reaches out and touches the elephant's tusk and touches the point on the end. Ooh, it's sharp. An elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man comes and touches the elephant's leg, that big, thick, sturdy leg, and he says, uh, how tall. An elephant is like a tree. And the fifth blind man reaches out and touches the elephant's big, floppy ear. And he says, oh, it's thin, it's floppy. An elephant is like a fan, you know, a big fan you'd wave. And the sixth blind man reaches out, touches the elephant's tail, that thin, you know, whipping around tail, and he says, oh, it's thin. An elephant, it's, an elephant is like a rope. And then these six blind men begin to argue, each insisting that their own perspective of the elephant is correct. And then the prince, whose house they're in, is awakened by the commotion. He comes outside and stands up on the balcony and calls out to them as they're arguing about who's right about what an elephant is. He says, hey guys, the elephant is a big animal. Each of you touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. So the blind men, now enlightened by the prince's wisdom, reach an agreement and conclude together that each of us only knows a part. To find out the whole truth, we must put all the parts together. Sounds very much like the perspective of my friend. This is a comfortable, nice, respectful conclusion for a pluralistic society. The story, it paints a picture of our human limitations, of our perspectives and experiences, and it encourages us to be humble and respectful as we approach other beliefs. And applied to religion, this story tells us that no one can have the full picture of God. We each are just touching a part, and we all need all the world's religions and perspectives to get the full picture. However, despite how memorable the story is, it actually creates more problems for us than it solves. So uh, I want to offer five problems with this story and this perspective, five problems that arise from it. And as I do, I want to recommend to you this book. This book is called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's 
largest religion. It's written by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. She's a believer. She lives outside Boston. Uh, She's very smart. And whether you're a Christian or not, this book I highly recommend. It's probably one of the best books I've read in the last four or five years, Confronting Christianity. It's got really well-researched answers to some really hard questions, great stories, and I think offers a perspective and a reminder to us as we read it. So Christian, non-Christian, highly, highly recommend this book, uh, Confronting Christianity. Take a look, take a read. It's awesome. I'm actually going to be citing some of the points. Some of the points I make come from Rebecca's book here as we go. So I want you to be aware of that. I want you to, I want to recommend that to you, a couple of the points I make there. So five problems with the story and this perspective of the, of the uh, elephant and the blind man. So let's go. Here we go. Five problems with the story. Number one is the problem of truth. The problem of truth. Now, when we hear this parable, you'll likely, uh, uh, you know, come to the conclusion that the moral of the story is that when we combine our perspectives, we come to a better understanding of truth. The problem is that each of the blind men was totally wrong about what an elephant is. An elephant is not a snake or a wall or a tree or a spear or a fan or a rope. An elephant is none of those things. An elephant is also not a snake plus a wall plus a tree plus a rope plus a spear plus a fan. An elephant is none of those things. An elephant is also not the sum of those things. An elephant is an elephant. It's a massive animal, a living, breathing thing, and it's it is that no matter what part of the elephant I happen to be touching. Uh, a few years ago, popular physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, he was on uh, Stephen Colbert's Late Show, and he said this famous quip. Uh, you'll see it on the screen. It says, the good thing about science is that it's true whether or not you believe in it. Well, I'd say that's the good thing about truth. <laughs> truth is true whether or not you believe in it. It's objective, it's above our experience with it. Truth is true, and our perspective doesn't change the truth. So we have a problem with truth in this story. Second problem with the story I want to offer, and I want you to stick with me through this point, is the problem of history. The problem of history. We cannot unsituate religious conviction and development from its historical context. Now, examining history can be very tricky. We all bring our modern bias to the table when we read historical works, and ancient sources especially often get distorted or even destroyed over time. For example, there's pretty good evidence, pretty convincing evidence that Julius Caesar, right, emperor of Rome, the first emperor of Rome, was assassinated on March 15th, 44 BC. There's good convincing evidence for that. However, it's not infallible, and in fact, it's possible that the evidence is unreliable and that Julius Caesar was assassinated on February 15th or April 15th or even not at all. That's possible. It's in the realm of possibility. No one alive today was there as an eyewitness to that event, right? It was over 2,000 years ago. Unlike some of our modern historical uh, events like who won the last Super Bowl or uh, even JFK's assassination. But less certainty in sources does not make Julius Caesar's assassination a subjective reality. He was either killed March 15th, 44 BC, or he wasn't. So what does this have to do with Christianity? 
Well, the central claim of the Christian faith is that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. And, and there is historical evidence for this claim. We have the documents preserved for us in our Bibles. We have writings and documents preserved for us outside the Bible. We have hundreds of eyewitness accounts of Jesus's resurrection. And we have the evidence of the early church exploding from a group of, you know, 11 scared followers huddled in a room to thousands almost overnight. We have evidence for this. And uh, whether you think the evidence is strong or weak or convincing or not, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical claim. It happened or it didn't, just like the assassination of Julius Caesar. And this exclusively Christian claim that Jesus was raised from the dead and only by his death and resurrection we can know God, this is a 2,000-year-old claim. And the uh, exclusive claim of Yahweh being the one true God goes back thousands of years even before that. It's historic. Now, for millennia, humans, we have tried to, uh, uh, tried to coexist with each other as we have different religions and philosophies and different tribes worshiping different gods. We've tried to get along for millennia, sometimes in peace, oftentimes not. And one way that we've negotiated this tension historically is through something called polytheism, which is saying there are many gods. So each local tribe or region can kind of integrate with everyone else because we all say, oh, all our gods exist. We all have a seat at the table, so to speak. But the Christian claim of one God, monotheism, and one way to know God through the death and resurrection of Jesus is exclusive and universal. There's only one God, not many, so no matter where you're from or who you claim to worship or who you thought existed, there is only one God. The early Jews made this claim among the pagan polytheistic cultures of Egypt and Canaan, and the early Christians made this claim among the pagan polytheistic culture of the Roman Empire, and because they wouldn't play nice with the Roman pantheon of gods, especially the claim that Caesar was the son of the gods, Christians were often persecuted. The claim that there is only one God and one way to know God through the physically resurrected Jesus does not fit into the moral of the parable because it's a historical claim. It's either true or it's not. It can't be kind of true. It is or it isn't. So we have a problem with history. Third problem we have with the story and the perspective is the problem of ethics. The problem of ethics. The First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America guarantees our freedom to assemble and practice our religious beliefs. This is a right guaranteed to us. So whether you're a Christian or you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist, we all live by and under this guarantee. Now, my non-Christian friends and atheist friends would all affirm that this is good and right, right? We should all be able to practice our beliefs. But what happens when one religious belief clashes with another or clashes with secular ethics, popular secular ethics? Uh, many who would uphold or believe that no religion can claim absolute truth or that all religions contain a portion of the truth, many who would believe that would also affirm there are some universal ethics, universal ethical beliefs. 
For example, uh, some core popular secular ethical norms today would state that uh, racism's wrong, men and women should be treated equally, and people should have uh, freedom of sexual expression. Those are popular secular ethical beliefs. And few, if any, would say that these uh, these ethical norms are contingent on our cultural context, right? They're considered universal. No matter where you are in the world, these apply to everyone or should apply to everyone. That's what, that's what they would say. But if people who, uh, you know, b- subscribe to these ethical norms were to say to a conservative traditional Muslim, hey, we respect your right to be a Muslim and uh, and uh, practice your religion as you want, so long as you allow for same-sex marriage and men and women to be treated equally and, and allow your teenage children to experiment sexually outside of marriage. Uh, would that be respect for that person's religion? No. It would not be allowing them and upholding their right to practice their faith as they desire. There's a clash. Humans cannot and will not come together and agree on a single set of ethical principles to live by. I mean, look around the world today, various religions and cultures and nations and and people groups and what's considered ethical in one place is considered unethical in another place. Even look in our own country, I mean, we've all been living it, it's no secret, we have various competing moral and ethical principles and we often find ourselves clashing over those things. So how can we all have one piece of a puzzle when so much of our beliefs and our ethics and how we live are in direct conflict with one another? And if God exists, which I believe he does, then he wants something. He wants us to live and be and act a certain way. And if all religions claim to have the truth and, and we all have competing ethics, how could we all be right? Now, for Christians, for believers, followers of Jesus, our ethical norm, our ethical principle that we follow is Jesus, who he is, what he said, how he lived. In Philippians 2, Paul puts this really well. Let me read a couple verses from Philippians 2, where the apostle Paul writes to the church and says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We'll pause there. And in these verses, Paul goes on to talk about how Jesus looked to our interests above his own, how he came from the throne room of heaven down to earth, and how he came from earth to die on the cross. And he says, Paul, there... Be like Jesus. Be like him. That's the unique, exclusive, ethical principle of Christianity. So we follow a crucified and risen Savior. We have a problem with ethics in this story. Uh, Fourth problem I want to offer this morning is the problem of revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but revelation. Things being revealed. The problem of revelation. Now, the story of the elephant ends with uh, the prince on the balcony, right? Uh, The person through whose eyes we kind of see the story unfold, and he's telling the blind men about the reality of what the elephant is. The prince can see, and the story only works because the prince is not blind, and he can see the whole picture of what the elephant is. 
And the only way the blind men are able to understand what's happening is because the prince already understands and reveals it to him, to them. Uh, here's what Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, has to say about this. How could you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant? How could you possibly know that no religion can see the whole truth unless you yourself have the superior, comprehensive knowledge of spiritual reality you just claim that none of the religions have? See, there's a problem there. Unless you know the whole truth, how can you claim that no one knows the whole truth? Truth relies on a truth teller, a revealer of truth. So in the story, the elephant represents God and the blind men, various religions and philosophies attempting to know him, but they can't know him without that outside revelation from the prince. Greg Kokel, who's, a, who's an author and, a, and an apologist, he makes this point. What if the elephant speaks? God is not silent, leaving us to guess about who he is, about his nature. God tells us who he is, what he's like, and what he wants. We don't learn about God from blindly groping in the dark. God has spoken. He has revealed himself to us, and we know God through his own self-disclosure. In the pages of our Bibles, we have God's own word about himself, full of stories about how and what he spoke to people throughout history. And in the person of Jesus, God walked the earth. He talked, and he taught, and he ate, and he performed miracles, and he made himself known to us. God speaks. And when God speaks, it changes everything. All contrary opinions are silenced. All guessing becomes pointless because he has spoken. And for the Christian, we believe God has spoken and still speaks. He has revealed himself to the world. And we don't have to grope blindly in the dark to guess what he's like. He's, he's told us. Fifth problem I want to offer this morning is the problem of Jesus. Is that the right way to say it? The problem of Jesus? The problem of Jesus. Uh, in Mark chapter 2, there's a story of Jesus. Uh, he's teaching in the town of Capernaum, and he's in someone's home, and the crowds have come, and they're so dense in and around the house that no one can get close to Jesus. No one else can get in there. And these four friends bring their paralyzed friend on his mat. They're trying to get to Jesus so Jesus will heal him, but they can't. So what they do is they climb on the roof of the house and they dig a hole in the roof and they lower, Jesus, or lower this guy down in front of Jesus. And, and Jesus looks at this paralyzed man who just dropped through the ceiling and says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I'm in the crowd, I'm confused at that moment. I'm like, this guy can't walk, Jesus. He doesn't need that. He needs you to touch him and heal him and let him walk. And the religious leaders that are around him are furious, and they respond to Jesus' words by saying, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Only God can forgive sins. 
Jesus responds to their objection and he says to them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your mat and walk. Then he tells the paralytic man, rise, take up your mat and walk. And he does proving who Jesus is. And in this story, Jesus doesn't deny their objections about only God can forgive sins because only God can forgive sins. And in healing that man in that moment, he proved that he is indeed God. And Jesus is going to make this claim multiple times throughout his life. He says things like, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. Uh, I and the Father are one. Uh, These are not the teachings of a good moral teacher or a wise man or even a good man. This is, as C.S. Lewis points out, these are either the words of an insane person, a liar, or God himself. And we have to respond to that. And Jesus doesn't fit into the elephant metaphor. He either is who he says he is or not. He either died and rose on the third day or he didn't. The tomb is either empty or that stone is still in the way. And if he did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is meaningless. It makes no sense. But if he did, then it's everything. It can't be kind of true. The moral of the elephant story is nice, right? Yes, we should be humble and respectful. But this uh, universally inclusive, pluralistic approach to God and truth doesn't ultimately hold up. God has spoken. He has revealed himself. Jesus rose from the dead. The tomb is empty. So yes, Christians believe there is one God and one way to know God through the resurrected Jesus. This is an exclusive claim, and it's either true or it's not. I am convinced that it's true. John chapter 3. We read a story about this interaction between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was one of the religious elite of Israel. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees knew God, so they claimed. They knew who he is. They knew his word. They knew his law. They knew how to enforce his law, and they made sure everyone, everyone followed. He's a Pharisee. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, in the dark, in secret. And he comes to Jesus, and he says this in John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. He says, Rabbi, teacher... We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replies to this in verse 3. He says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Notice here Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus doesn't ask. Nicodemus is curious about something. What's up with you, Jesus? And he hits something in him when he, when he says this born again thing. How can it be? It doesn't make sense, Nicodemus says. Being born a second time? Verse 5 and 6, Jesus answers Nicodemus' dialogue. He says, 
I truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. And Jesus keeps going from there. What Jesus says here is totally different than what Nicodemus, I think, has categories for. Be born again by the Spirit? It's confusing. It's very specific, and it's exclusive. No one can enter the kingdom unless they are born again by the Spirit of God. It's only one way. It's exclusive. And this story is left unresolved here. We don't hear from Nicodemus again for a long time. He pops up once briefly. He's with the Pharisees. He's sort of defending Jesus, but we're not really sure where he's at or how he's handling this exclusive claim that Jesus makes to him about being born again. But if we flip the Gospel of John towards the end in chapter 19, Jesus is crucified. He's given up his spirit All his followers have abandoned him. Not even Peter, who makes such bold claims like, I'll die with you, is anywhere to be found. Jesus' body is taken down from the cross, and a man named Joseph comes and asks to be given Jesus' body so he can bury him. And who's with Jesus? Or who's with Joseph as they tend to the body of Jesus? John 19, verse 39. It says, he was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. That's, friends, that's over the top. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. Nicodemus, one of only two men bold enough, brave enough, to bury the body of their crucified Savior, Jesus. So how did Nicodemus go from point A to point B? Well, we, we don't really know. He, we saw him confused, put off by the exclusive claim Jesus makes in chapter 3, be born again. But I think, as time goes on, that resonated deep within Nicodemus. As he pondered Jesus' words and wondered if what he said was true, that there is only one way to God through this specific, exclusive, seemingly impossible thing that Jesus says, being born again. And while that wasn't what Nicodemus was looking for, it's not, he didn't come with that question in chapter 3. Isn't it exactly what he was looking for? After all these years of him being a Pharisee, of learning, of teaching, of following, he he realized he didn't have the answer. And when God spoke to him, it changed everything when he revealed himself. So here's Nicodemus burying Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the exclusive truth, the only way by which we are saved. And through him and him only comes life. But no one is excluded from him. He says, Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All. He says in John uh, chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, not the rocks and the dirt, but the people who, in- who inhabit it, 
God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, have eternal life. Whoever, the world. Yes, it's an exclusive claim to truth, but we, Jesus doesn't exclude anyone from coming to him. No one is excluded from knowing God. So church, let me just finish by saying, come to Jesus and you will find rest. You will find the way, the truth, and the life. Do you stand as we pray? God, thank you that you, you don't leave us in the dark, lost, blind, reaching out to find whatever we can grab a hold of and guess what it might be or what it might mean. No, Lord, you have spoken to us through your word, through your spirit, you have made yourself known. Open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear. And God, when we come to you, whether, for it's, whether it's the first time or the hundredth time or the thousandth time, Lord, we ask that you would give us rest for our weary souls. Help us to know the truth. And most of all, Lord, help us to know you and become like you. So God, uh, fill us with your grace, fill us with your spirit, surround us with your presence. And Lord, would we see you and see the truth in new ways this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church, great to be with you today. God bless you as you go. Have a great week.